I want to remind you of where we've been. We've been in the middle of a sermon series uh, about discouragement. Now you might think, well, Pastor, you're che- teaching us how to be discouraged. Now I'm, I'm hoping to encourage you not to hang out in discouragement. It's a depot, and if you hang out there, it'll take you places you don't want to go. So you want to you want to be able to overcome discouragement. Now, I, I have something to say. I have to tell you that this is a sermon series that kind of caught me off guard. How so? You, as a pastor, sometimes you're really excited about a series or you feel like, wow, this is going to really connect. I feel good about it. This is one of those series I kind of stumbled into and I felt like the Lord put it on my heart, but I didn't know exactly what he had planned. And I wasn't so excited about it, but I went into it and wow, it's touched your hearts. It has. I've gotten so much feedback on how that was that was perfect that's what you needed and so I'm just amazed at how good God is and he just reminds me over and over and over if you let me if you let me handle it I got this and so Lord I know you have this I know you're 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 an awesome God but I also want to tell you that sometimes you you were you were telling me in your feedback that pastor it seems like you're talking directly at me and some of the stories and some of the encouragement and some of the things that you highlighted about discouragement, it's like you had a camera in my home. And so I know sometimes you feel like I'm doing this to you. I, I'm not. I'm just preaching God's word. But I want you to go beyond just listening. I do. And that's the Holy Spirit saying, I want you to, to receive it. See, it's, a, it's one thing to hear it and say, wow, that's a cool message. Wow, I should probably do something about it. Wow, that's neat. I could probably uh, uh, apply this, this and that. But it's a different thing to feel it deep inside and to say, this is how I'm going to apply it. I'm going to make sure that I internalize this and that I start acting on it. And I need to use these, these, uh, these points from God's word to overcome a discouragement in my life. So I really want you to go back. If you felt like this message, these messages were for you, don't be the person that hears. That's what the, uh, the, the, the book of James says. Don't be hearers and not doers, deceiving ourselves. But instead, we should what put into practice what we have learned. And so today we conclude our series on discouragement. I'm going I'm to ask you to be encouraged even when you don't feel God. Even when you don't see him explicitly. And we're going to be covering a very interesting book and a very, uh, a very interesting heroine. We're going to be cu- talking about Queen Esther. And Queen Esther is an amazing, amazing individual and an awesome, really, really, uh, really action-packed story. Now, I want to tell you a little bit about the, the book of Esther. She's the book of Esther is one of four books that are part of the exile, okay? There's four books. There's Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. Oh, yes, Job comes next. But that is not the fourth book of the exile. The fourth book of the exile is Daniel. So you have Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Daniel. Now, that's the way they're found in God's word, but that's not the chronological order. So stay with me on this. God's word has them in that order. Now Daniel's comes, Daniel comes much later. There's, there's other books in between and whatnot. But that is not the chronological order. The chronological order, and I'm going to leave Daniel out for just a second, is, uh, uh, well, let's, let's put them in order. Daniel, and then you have Ezra, Esther, Nehemiah. So Esther would fall in between Ezra and Nehemiah. Now I'm going to explain some things about its historical context. That way you can stay with me and, and, and your life will be enriched. Ezra takes place and starts right after the exile is finished. Now I want to, I want to highlight a couple of things here. I'm going to talk about the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah had a message for God's people that they would what? They would be on in, they would have to go into captivity by the Babylonians. The Babylonians would, would uh, conquer them, take them into exile. Now, there are a lot of prophets at the same time as Jeremiah saying, he's wrong, he's wrong, he's wrong. Who proved to be right? Jeremiah proved to be right. 
Now, Jeremiah says this, after 70 years, behold, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. And so Jeremiah foresaw after 70 years in Babylon, they would be allowed to come back. That's where Ezra takes place. Ezra starts off with a decree. Turn in your Bibles to Ezra chapter 1, or you can look right up here. Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord, spoken by who? Jeremiah. We just talked about that. By Jeremiah. The Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, the king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. And what is it that he put in writing? Watch this. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Hello. How many of you are going, what is going on? Is this a Christian king? Is this a Jewish king? Is this a godly king? Who is this? This is the king of the Medo-Persian Empire. The greatest empire in the world at the time. They conquered Babylon. They conquered Babylon. I'll talk a little bit about that in a second. But what I want you to know is this. This king conquers Babylon. Who was in Babylon for those 70 years? A prophet by the name of Daniel. Now Daniel served under Nebuchadnezzar, the great king of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar goes, uh, he dies. And then you have another king, and then you have his grandson, Belshazzar, who actually loses the kingdom to Cyrus. Cyrus comes into Babylon, having conquered them. And you can imagine who he meets. At some point, he meets the prophet Daniel, who served in the Babylonian court. And the prophet Daniel, I don't know, but might have might he have presented Cyrus with a copy of the scroll of Isaiah? Because look, in Isaiah chapter 44, verse 23, through chapter 45, verse 8, Cyrus is mentioned by the prophet Isaiah. Years before Cyrus even came to be born. Some of you need to be going, whoa, is this true? No, no, watch this. Watch this. It's going to get good. I need you to stay with me on this. So Cyrus reads that the word of the Lord names him directly and calls him the shepherd. Well, what does it say? The anointed shepherd over Israel for this particular time to what? To set them free after 70 years of captivity in Babylon and to allow them to go back. And so this decree goes forth. There it is right here. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them, he says in the book of Ezra. So he allows them to go back. Now, stay with me. Stay with me. So what's happening? Jeremiah said there would be 70 years. 70 years takes place. Cyrus conquers Babylon. Cyrus says you can go back. Ezra talks about the people that choose, choose to go back. And there's three waves. The first wave, the second wave, which includes Ezra. The third wave, which includes Nehemiah, which we talked about last week. Okay? Ezra talks about the people that go what? Back. Esther, stay with me, is about the people that stay behind. You go, why would they stay behind? Always remember, people are people are people. Isn't that true? Okay, they've been brought into exile. They had to restart their lives in a foreign nation. They've been there for 70 years. They're comfortable now. Persia is a prosperous place. And Persia, because of Cyrus, is allowing them to live in freedom. They don't want to go back to a place that lays in ruins. It's a lot of hard work. 
I got to reestablish a business. There's no economy. There's nothing going on. So most of them stay behind. Now stay with me on this. I'm giving you more. Because why? Because you're my, you're my favorite servant. You're my favorite service. Excuse me. You know why you're my favorite service? Because there's no one behind you. That means I can keep you here all day. I'm, I'm just kidding you. I'm not going to keep you here all day, but I'm going to give you some extra. And this is what I'll tell you. Ezekiel prophesied against the people that stayed behind. Do you remember the message I gave where I showed you the 12 most significant prophecies showing that God's attention is pointing back to Israel and that the, the, the what, the, the fig tree is beginning to bloom again? One of those prophecies, if you go back and listen, it's at the beginning of the pandemic when we first started meeting outside. I talked about the prophecy where Ezekiel laid on one side and he prophesied to Israel. He laid on the other side and he prophesied to Judah. For some of you, it, it, it sounds like a lot. If it's too much, just ignore this. But if it's not, stay with me on this. Because they refused to come back, their punishment would then be multiplied. And that's when the prophecy came to be. It, you know, when... when um, when it was finally fulfilled is when they became a nation in 48. And I showed you that calculation. What does this mean? It means now we're ready to talk about Esther. Esther deals with the people that stay behind in Persia. All right? So Cyrus has died. You have a king by the name of Xerxes. Xerxes is a title. Don't let that throw you. And we start off in chapter 1 of Esther with Xerxes throwing a party. He's throwing a celebration. And you can hear the music. Come on. I mean, he's got it going on. Or maybe he's a country party. I don't know what kind of party it is. But he's got a Persian party happening. And he decides to talk about how great he is and how wonderful he is. And so he has his kingdom on display. He has his court on display. He has everything on display. And he looks around and he says, I have a beautiful queen. I want everybody to see my queen. So he calls for his queen and he says, I want you to show queen, show the people how beautiful you are. She refuses. She says, uh-uh, I don't think so. <laughs> the one thing you don't do to a king when he's trying to show off is make him look stupid. So she made him look stupid, and after a series of uh, uh, insecure, um, yeah, insecure conversations, you can read them there, he gets rid of her. He says, we're done. Don't let the door hit you where the good Lord split you. And so he, he puts her away. You say, wow, this is a pagan king was what pagan kings do. Now he has a problem because he's like, okay, um, I don't have a queen. So somebody comes up with an idea. Let's hold the bachelor contest. They have the very first bachelor contest ever. Now I know we're in, a, we're, we're, we're in church, uh, so you got to have to admit the truth here. How many of you have ever seen The Bachelor? I got, <laughs> Maybe, I don't know. You guys got like, okay, look, I'll admit it. I've seen the, it gets crazy. This thing gets crazy. Now, some of you are going, no, it's not going to get that crazy. That's ancient times. They weren't that bad. Can I tell you? People are people. Let me put it to you in, in Solomon's terms. Solomon says there's nothing new under the sun. Women are women are women. Men are men are men. People are people are people. You know, if it gets crazy now, it's going to get crazy then. Yeah, but they were a Christian nation. Persia was not a Christian nation. <laughs> they, they were a pagan nation. So you can imagine what this contest started off looking like. I don't know what it was like. Maybe it was very subdued. Maybe it was very good. Maybe it was very nice. But I can imagine there was some real interesting dynamics between the women and between the families, between what's happening. So this is what happens. There are 127 provinces from, from India to Ethiopia. This is a vast kingdom. He decides, I'm going to find the prettiest girl of all to be my queen. 
And so he starts holding this contest. And the Bible tells us, listen to this, that he took on this idea, and I'm going to go to chapter 2 later. He decides to find the most, the, the most beautiful young virgins, right? And let them be giving beauty treatment. So he entices them to come out. He says, I'm going to treat you like a queen. And for a year, you're going to have the best treatment you could possibly have so that you can be the most, you can be as beautiful as you were created to be. And so you can see it right there. Before the young women were to come before the king, and before his court, so they can start making the decisions, they had 12 months of beauty treatment prescribed for them. Anyone going, what? 12 months of beauty treatment? They describe a little bit more of the treatment. And this is what would happen. You're going to get to come before the king, and you get to bring whatever you want. I don't know what that means, but I guess they could dress up. They could do all kinds of stuff. They could whatever to try to get the king's attention. You know, it's interesting because with The Bachelor, they always have some kind of gimmick they're trying to do to get the, that, that guy's attention. The guys do the same thing when they're trying to get The Bachelorette's attention. They always got some kind of gimmick. So that kind of sounds just like that. It's like, so Esther decides, I, no gimmicks for me. I'm just going to be myself. And what does the Bible say? Listen to that last, last line there. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. You know what's going on here, guys? I don't know if you've caught this, but, but I need to tell you something before we go any further. I need to tell you that Esther has come under a little bit of controversy over the years. What kind of controversy? People have asked, why is Esther in the Bible? Why is the book of Esther in the Bible? Since it is the only book, listen very closely, that does not expressly mention the name of God. The only book in the entire Bible doesn't mention God. What's up with that? How many of you are going, ah, yeah, why is it in the Bible? Well, well, well listen to me. So, so God is not expressly mentioned. You don't see him show up in a, in, a, in a pillar of fire. You don't see him in a cloud by day. You don't see him dropping from the sky with manna. You don't see him bursting out of a rock and filling the desert with living water. You don't see these miraculous ways in which he shows up in other Old Testament books. You don't even hear his name being mentioned. There's no worship of him. I mean, it's, 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 kind of, it's kind of bizarre. And so here you have a book that's about God, but in a different way than you might expect. See, this is what I'm trying to get you to understand. What I'm trying to get you to understand is that there's times in our lives, and this is what Esther wants the reader to understand. There are times in our lives when you don't hear God's name being mentioned. There are times in your life when you don't feel God's presence being felt. You don't, you don't see him moving, and you wonder to yourself, Lord, are you there? Is there any time where you felt that? We're like, Lord, where are you at? And yet Esther reminds you, He's still in charge. And so I've got one point. Usually I have three, four, five, six, seven points like last week. This week I have one point. God's providence. What is God's providence? God's providence is that he is sovereign over the nations and the kingdoms of men. And he does what he wishes and how he wishes. And he puts over them anyone he wishes. Because God is sovereign. God's providence is what you'll see. And you go, but pastor, how have I seen God's providence? You know what? It was God's providence that this king would decide to throw a party. That he would get butt hurt with his wife. And that he would put her away. And that he would decide to have a contest. God's providence. And that Esther's uh, cousin, Mordecai, would talk her into getting a part of this contest. And that she would go through thousands and thousands of women and emerge as the queen. Can I tell you something? God's providence. God's hands at work. But he's not mentioned. And he's not seen and he's not felt. But he's still there. 
Glory be to God who is always there. So watch what happens. He, he, she gets favor. She's, she becomes the queen of all of Persia. And now her cousin Mordecai, who is a good man, is hanging out at the city gate. Now you go, what is the city gate? The city gate is the place where people of influence hang out and they talk business. And while he's there, he hears two men, two scoundrels, talking about, about a coup d'etat. A coup d'etat is backstabbing the king, betraying him, and taking his position. And so he hears this, and he immediately goes tells who? He tells his cousin, who is the new queen. She tells her husband, the king, and he, she says, this man Mordecai let me know. Doesn't let him know that they're cousins necessarily. I, I, don't, I don't recall that detail at this time. But he definitely gets the credit. But in the king's haste to uncover the plot, he does his, he does his investigation and covers that this is in fact true. And he executes these two people. Can I tell you something? God's providence. Why? Because Mordecai has just been introduced to the king in a very favorable light. God's providence. But the king got so in hurry that he never did anything to thank Mordecai. God's providence. Stay with me. Watch what happens next. So then enters the evil villain. Every good story has to have a villain. Amen? Come on, some of your favorite villains. Who are they? How about the Joker from Batman? Who else? Someone said Jafar in the first service. How many of you know who Jafar is? Jafar is the villain from Aladdin. Who else? Who? Maleficent. Bad villain. Yeah. Who else? How about, is it Soren? Soren from, uh, from Lord of the Rings? How about uh, the Wicked Witch of the West? There's all sorts of villains. This is the worst of them all. You know why? Because he actually existed. He was a proud man, very rich and influential man who was a racist and wanted to see God's people dead. Why? So he's introduced and he, he comes to power and influence in the king's court. He's also very rich, very wealthy. And so he weasels his way into this position and then has the king honor him by decreeing that everyone needs to bow in Haman, that's the, that's the villain's name, Haman's presence. And so as he goes out into the gate and into the town square, people begin to bow except one, Mordecai. That's Esther's cousin. He won't bow, and when Haman realizes this man won't bow to him, he hates him. Ooh, it burns him up. And it's not enough just to get rid of Mordecai. He starts realizing Mordecai is part of those other people. And that's when he really gets enraged. It's not enough just to kill Mordecai. I want to kill his, all of his people. And so he hatches this crazy plan to do it. And this is what he says. He comes in close to the king and he says, King, if it would please you, there is a group of people that I want to advise you on. They're Jewish people. They do not belong to our nation. They're spread out and they've started to intertwine themselves into our people. They have different customs. They don't want to be a part of us. I believe they are a very present threat to your kingdom. If it's okay, let me handle it by sending out a decree that on a certain day, in a certain month, a certain time, our people can rise up and put them to death. The Jewish people. And here is 10,000 pieces of silver to let you know that I honor you. So the, key to, the king decrees this. This gets back to Mordecai, and Mordecai is mortified. So he's freaking out. The way a, a, a godly man in ancient times 
would, would deal with their sorrow. They would tear their clothes, put on sackcloth, and cover themselves in ashes, saying, in ashes, saying, I am at my lowest point, and I need you to have mercy on me, O God. He begins to tell the queen about this, and the queen says, Mordecai, there's nothing I can do. What do you mean there's nothing you can do? You're the queen. You should do something. No, you don't get it. You see, I cannot see the king unless he calls upon me, and he may not call upon me in time. Well, why don't you present yourself to him? If I present myself to him without being called out, I could be beheaded. This is serious stuff. So Mordecai and Esther have this conversation. And it's in verse 13. Do not think that because you are in the king's house that you alone of all the Jews will escape. What is Mordecai saying there? He's, to be, he's speaking to every one of us. There comes a time when you have to stand up and don't think just because you're in a safe spot that somehow you'll be safe. See, let me, let me just put it to you this way. Just because it's California that's going through it well it, it just, with that you know the craziness of Andrew Cuomo doesn't affect us in Texas you say, oh pastor, you shouldn't talk like that um when my fellow Americans are crying because they have no way to support themselves because of the restringent um, policies that these individuals are putting forth, trampling their rights, we cannot just believe that, that it will never affect us. And that's what you say, well, what do we do about it? You, we have to uh, go listen to Wednesday night. I gave you specific things we can do. Number one is pray, because you know what Esther does? This is the conversation she has with her, her, um, her cousin. For if you remain silent at this time, listen to what he said, if you remain silent at this time, Relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. So, so what needs to happen? And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. This is your time, baby. That's what he's saying to her. He's saying, this is your time, girl. This is your time, sir. This is your time. You go, well, well, what did they do? You know what they agreed to do? The same thing we need to be doing more of as Americans. They've agreed to pray and to fast about this. So what happens when they fasted? I'll tell you what happened. This is what happened. They fasted for three days and God put on her heart, go before the king. Well, but what about being beheaded and all of these things? So she goes before the king and the Bible says she put on her best royal robes. She put on everything, right? And mama didn't raise no dummy. She got dressed up nice. She knew I need to look my best. And when she stood in the outer court, the king caught a glimpse of something. And he said, who is it? And they let him know, it's your queen. It's your queen. Now here's the moment of truth. Stay with me on this. You can see it up there sitting on his royal throne in the hall, facing the entrance. When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out his scepter immediately. Immediately. You know what that is? He, this is how I see it, okay? Now watch this. Watch this. He's sitting there any normal boring day, handling kingly business, right? This person has a problem, and we have to... 
expand here and they need resources here and all of these things need to happen and he's making decrees and making decisions and he's dealing with his stressful day and then all of a sudden he looks up and he catches a glimpse of something beautiful. Now remember, she was the most beautiful in the land. It reminds me of my wife. Guys, that's when you should be like, that reminds me of my wife. There you go, there you go. So watch. He looks and he catches an eye and immediately says, who is it? It's the queen. He raises his scepter and says, man, I'm done with all of you guys. Bring her in. Bring her in. Amen. I got one word for you, two words. God's providence. God's providence. But I want you to think about what happened. It was in a response to prayer and fasting. Prayer and fasting changes things. Prayer and fasting changes things. I've been praying fasting for my brothers, my fellow Americans around this nation. I've been praying that things would change, people's hearts would change, that righteousness would begin to abound and raise up. And, 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 and you can do the same. And so this is what happens. Queen Esther comes forward and she says, what can I do for you, darling? And she says, well, honey, um, I have a request for you, but first I need to have a banquet. And I want you and Haman to be the guest of honors. So Haman gets called to this banquet because the king says immediately, let it be done. The banquet begins to, they begin to make preparations at the banquet. Um, they just kind of, they just kind of talk. She doesn't show her hand yet. She doesn't show her cards yet. And so Haman goes from that banquet feeling like he's all that plus a bag of chips. And this is what happens. He goes into the uh, town square there and he sees Mordecai. Mordecai will not what? Bow. And he looks over at Mordecai and he says, he doesn't look scared. But I'm about to put his people to death. You know what prayer does? It gives you courage. It gives you courage. And you know that you may not hear God's name. You may not be in a land that worships his name. You may not be in a place where you see his hand at work in a live, visible way. But you know that he's still at work. And so this is what he's, he's cool as a cucumber. And this really bothers Haman. So he goes back home and he and his wife decide to build a huge pole where they're going to impale Mordecai on it. They're going to kill him there. And he says, I'm not going to let him bother me because I know that I will soon be rid of him. In fact, he doesn't know that I have been so honored that I alone with the king, was invited by Queen Esther to be part of her banquet, and I have a second invitation to a second banquet. That night, the king cannot sleep. Can I tell you something? God's, he cannot sleep. So what does he do? Who said that? No, because he's not a Christian. But you know what he does? He says, I need you to bring me. He wants to watch CNN. Maybe not CNN, but <laughs> some news station. He says, bring me the Royal Chronicles. I want to read. I want you to read to me kind of what's been happening. And in the Royal Chronicles, they start to read the story of how Mordecai helped save his throne from the two traitors. God's, as he's reading the story, he realizes something. That back then when it happened... He got in such a rush to put those guys to death, he never honored Mordecai, God's. He never honored him. So he wakes up the next morning and says, we've got to honor this man. Haman comes into his court and he says, who goes there? Haman, come on in. i got a question for you. There is a man in our kingdom we need to honor. He's important. He's wonderful. He's this. He's that. Haman starts feeling good. He thinks he's talking about him. So the king puts this question to him. How do you think I should honor this man? Haman says, oh, here's my chance. 
to be honored like I've always wanted to be honored. I think you should put him on a horse. I think you should parade him through the kingdom. I think you should have a procession in his name. I think you should do this, this, that, and the other. The king looks at him and says, great. Do it to Mordecai. Can you imagine how he felt in that moment? God's, God's providence. So he puts Mordecai on a horse. He has to go before him and announce him. Can you imagine what he must be feeling? He's fuming by this time. He's absolutely fuming. He's like, can I cannot wait to kill this guy. Meanwhile, the second banquet takes place. The king cannot stand it anymore. Queen, you've got to tell me what is it on your heart. Even if it's half the kingdom, I'll do it for you. So she says, this is what's on my heart. There's a plot against my people. And you have been wrapped in it. They had you decree this so that my people would be killed. He says, who did it? The queen says, your so-called trusted advisor. You can read it. The king is so angry, he has to leave their presence. He feels manipulated. God's providence. He goes out into the garden, and he's already made up his mind. Haman knows he's done. That's why he doesn't follow the king out into the garden. He decides to stay back and beg Esther to forgive him. So it reminds me of Ric Flair. Ever remember wrestling? You remember Ric Flair? Ric Flair was like, whoa, you know, and, but more importantly, he'd be like, no, no, please, please, please. And he'd have those, he'd have those little, uh, his little hair just, just blowing in the wind, please, 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 please. And he'd be begging for mercy, right? And if you showed him any mercy, what would he do? He'd hit you in the good parts. Mm. He'd just stand right there and he'd go, mm. and then he'd take you down. And, and that's exactly what Haman is. He's a villain. These are crocodile tears. Esther sits there very composed, understanding what God's already revealed to her through prayer and fasting. The king comes back in and says what? Who is this that is bothering my queen? One of his advisors says, hey, your honor, this man has a pole right outside his house where he was planning on killing Mordecai. Maybe we can use that. <laughs> the king says, good idea, go put him on it. Impale him there, gods. Oh, come on. This is a book that doesn't mention the name of God. God's providence. So the queen says, now I'll make the rest of my request. I'd like for you to enact a second edict or a second decree allowing my people to defend themselves on the day where their enemies will rise up and try to purge them. So he does, and on that day, God's people rise up with the strength of the Lord and they defeat their evidence, I mean their enemies, God's providence. Not only do they defeat their enemies, but they gain favor in the nation and many come over and become honorary Jews because of what? The favor that they feel they have from God. God's Providence. So let me share with you how Esther's book is laid out. Starts off with a, pro with a party. God's providence. Party doesn't go quite like they thought. A decree is made. God's providence. Two traitors are revealed. Executed. God's providence. There's an evil plot. God's providence. That evil plot ends up in an execution. Ends up in another decree, God's providence. Ends up in a holy party, God's providence. 
See, that's kind of interesting. It goes one way and it comes back the exact same way. You know what God is trying to show us? I got you going and coming. Even when you don't see me or sense me, I'm at work. So here's where it really gets good. And, and, and I'm five minutes from, from closing. Nehemiah 2.6. Last week we covered Nehemiah and him rebuilding the temple. Not, excuse me, not rebuilding the temple. Rebuilding the city gate and wall. So Ezra deals with the people that went back, right? Ezra comes first, then Esther, then Nehemiah. Here is where Nehemiah and Esther overlap in this verse. Watch this. Then the king with the queen sitting beside him asked me, how long will your journey take and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. This is a very important verse. Why? Because we know that Artaxerxes granted Nehemiah permission to go rebuild this city wall and gate. We know that this is huge. I'm going to tell you how big it is in a second, but stay with me. Don't you dare lose attention now. This is so important. So Artaxerxes says yes to Nehemiah, his cupbearer, who wants to go do this project that God has put on his heart. This is the third wave. Remember, Esther comes in three, I mean, Ezra comes in three waves. The first wave is the people going to start rebuilding the temple. When, when Cyrus, the king, says, go back. The second wave is when Ezra goes himself to be a part of reestablishing the worship in that temple because he is a priest and a scribe. The third wave is when Nehemiah, the cupbearer to Artaxerxes, is allowed to go back and reestablish the city gate. Now watch this. I'm giving you something I didn't give the other, the other two services. This is important because before you can reestablish society and before you can reestablish real governance, there has to be a real worship plan. See, notice how God reestablished Jerusalem. He sent the priest first. They did the temple first, then the city wall. We tried to do things in reverse order. God has to come first before you can get organized. Before you can seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else will fall into place. Okay, that was extra, but watch. Here we go. Why is this so significant? Because many scholars believe that queen sitting there could be Queen Esther. She stayed behind. She was part of the people that stayed behind. That would be very influential in, in having this king see the importance of letting Nehemiah go to reestablish the wall. Why was it so important that someone be there to influence this pagan king because this pagan king has no reason in the world to allow one of his trusted officials to go and spend time doing something he could care less of. Not only that, he paid for many, much of it. But why was that so important? I'll tell you why it was important. Because Daniel, in chapter 9, the most important prophetic chapter in all of Scripture, says that a decree would go forth. And that decree would mark the time to start the calendar rolling. And at the end of 69-7, 69 weeks, the Messiah would be revealed in Jerusalem. Why did Esther stay back? Because she would be the queen sitting beside Artaxerxes, her son, either her stepson or her real son. Scholars can't decide. But either way, God's Providence was at work with a queen saying, let him go to do this because the word of the Lord has to be fulfilled. Because on Palm Sunday, Jesus would walk into, oh my, not walk, he would ride. He would ride into Jerusalem. And the, and the religious leaders would say, master, tell your disciples to keep quiet. He would say, if they keep quiet, the mountains would cry out. Because on this day, if you read in Daniel chapter 9, it says a decree will be set forth to reestablish 
Jerusalem city walls. It will take seven sevens, 49 years. That's how long it took for, for Nehemiah's project to be done. But more importantly, that decree is a matter of historical record because Artaxerxes right there put it in writing. And you can go back and point to that. It would take 49 sevens and 62 sevens. You can read it. It's right there. Daniel chapter 9, verses 24, 25, 26. And Messiah will be revealed and cut off. I'm going to connect some more dots for you. Are you okay? Are you okay? I'm going to connect some more dots for you. Why did Magi show up to crown Jesus king of the Jews? Because this same Daniel prophecy, when a similar plot was hatched to kill Daniel, he became the head of the Magi when God raised him up. This is the story of God's providential hand at work throughout the books of exile. What are the books of exile? Ezra, with Daniel being first. Ezra. Nehemiah and Esther. How do I know they're the plan? Because Daniel, as a young man, is asked to interpret a dream for Nebuchadnezzar. This is during the 70 years before what I was just talking about right now. He's asked to interpret a dream. And he tells, when nobody else can interpret it, he tells the king the dream and then gives him the interpretation. And this is the interpretation. Listen very closely. The Lord God in heaven is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and he gives them to anyone he wishes. And you need to be humble before him, King Nebuchadnezzar. For a year he remembers that. A year to the date, the Bible says, he's on his balcony and he's saying, look at all that I've done. I am truly great. And just then the word of the Lord hits him. I am the sovereign God the king of all the world, and I give the kingdoms of men to anyone I wish. And today I will drive you into the field. You will eat grass like a cow, and you will live out there with the animals for seven years until you know that the Lord God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men, and he gives them to anyone he wishes. You want to know how Balshazzar, Balshazzar ends up? Balshazzar is King Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, this is when King Cyrus conquers him. He's throwing a party, thinking his kingdom's going to last forever. A hand writes a message on the wall. No one can interpret it. They go and get Daniel. There was a man who used to be the head of the Magi for your grandfather. Maybe he knows what's going on. They bring Daniel out. He looks at the message and he says, oh yeah, this is it. You have been judged, you've failed, you failed, you've been found wanting, and today your kingdom's gone. And the, and the treasure you want to give me, you can keep it. Matter of fact, I told your grandfather this same message. That the Lord God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and he gives them to anyone he wishes. And today he has get, taken it from you and he's given it to Cyrus. And that's where our story started. But Daniel was the head of the Magi for a while. He wrote down his prophecies that marked to the day when Jesus would be revealed. That's what the Magi were there because the Magi, listen very closely, were Persian king makers. The Magi came from, Balth uh, from Babylon into Persia and they remained as part of the Persian Empire even though the Greek Empire had already conquered them. And now they were in the Roman Empire, but they were still following the words of the prophet. Oh, man. I'm not trying to impress you. I'm trying to impress upon you. God's providence is awesome. Is awesome. Is awesome. It's awesome. And so you might say, Pastor, I've been feeling a little discouraged. God's up to something. And he's up to something big. You don't have to get discouraged. You have to believe. 
and pray and trust. And there's a simple verse that you can go home with. It's found in Romans 8, 28. God works all things. Not some things, all things. For the good of those who love him. If you say this morning, I love him. Then God's working for you. And the awesome king of glory. Listen to me. I'm literally five minutes over. That's not a lot. You may not feel God. God loves you. He's working behind the scenes. Let that faith rise up in your heart. He's working behind the scenes. He works all things out for your good and according to his purpose. If you love him and trust him. So I'm going to ask you to take your communion supply and just say, Lord, we trust you. We love you. So, the Bible says that Jesus gave us this as a ceremony to remember what he did for us on Calvary. And so the Bible says that we pray and we give thanks for what he did. The bread represents his body that was broken for us. And the blood represents the blood that he shed so that we might be washed white as snow. Lord, we thank you because you willingly allowed your body to be broken so that we could be healed. Father, you willingly allowed your blood to be shed so that we could be forgiven. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. We trust your providence. Church, God is good.